Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Monica Gossin about her book, The Racial Politics of Division, Interethnic Struggles for Legitimacy in Multicultural Miami, published by Cornell University Press in June 2019. Dr. Gossin is an associate professor of sociology at the College of William & Mary, where her teaching spans courses on Black communities in the United States, the experiences of immigrants in the U.S., and comparative race relations. Her research specializes in Africana and Latinx studies, international migration, interethnic relations, and race and gender in the media. In addition to the book that we will be discussing today, The Racial Politics of Division, Dr. Gossin has also published on race and gender media representations of Asian and Black populations within the United States. Thank you so much for being with us today, Monica, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, I, was wonder, I was wondering if you could begin um, by telling us a bit about yourself, perhaps a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, um, where you got your PhD, the field you, you got your PhD in, um, and how you became interested in the topic of interethnic relation amongst U.S. and foreign-born racialized peoples. Sure. Sure. I uh, grew up in Southern California. Um, I usually just say Orange County since I moved around quite a bit throughout the county. Um, And, um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, from my experience in California that really brought me to this book was just kind of thinking about the multicultural uh, context of of the United States, how it's shifting, especially in places like Los Angeles and Miami, different cities where there, the majority is um, there's no majority population, and it's and the white population is smaller than the majority population combined. And so, I was really interested in talking about some of those types of dynamics. You know, what are the racial dynamics in those spaces? Um, growing up in those spaces, I um, mostly uh, had friends who were from different countries, and um, you know, we all had a minority experience, but it was different based on where we were coming from. And I wanted to talk about, you know, I really was interested in how those racial dynamics intersect. Um, and so this is, that's where I grew up. And that kind of brought me to some of these issues that I'm interested in and I, that I discussed in the book. And I ended up um, getting my PhD at you know, uh, UC San Diego um, in the Department of Ethnic Studies and I was mentored by some wonderful people, um, Dr. Jane Rhodes, Raul Fernandez, Sarah Johnson, Dan Hallen, and um, Ana Celia Centella. And, you know, I really benefited from their, from their mentorship and um, as they helped me shape my project. Thanks. That's amazing. Um, and specifically, now I'm really interested in how you came about thinking about Cubans in Miami, growing up in Orange County. <laughs> yes. Well, it's really interesting. Um, it kind of came about in a roundabout way. One of it was through my interest in music. 
Um, you know, so when I was getting my PhD in ethnic studies, I was very much interested in kind of these cultural productions that people of color put forth and the political aspects of those cultural productions. And in thinking about that, um, I was interested in, you know, how people who are situated between um, these ideas of Blackness and Latinoness, how people who are situated in that space, how they navigate the United States. In particular, when we think about the realm of music, you know, um, Afro-Cuban music is definitely one of the um, things I was interested in. Celia Cruz, I've written a little bit about her and her positionality and, and reading her as a political figure and not just as a, as a cultural um, figure. So I wanted to kind of expand, you know, when thinking about Afro-Latinos um, in general and Afro-Cubans in particular, I wanted to, to expand to um, beyond the cultural realm, but thinking about the political realm. And so I, um, so I, I decided with that to kind of explore further, you know, the positionality of Afro-Cubans. And there's a lot of ways that that's similar to other people who are Afro-Latino, but very particular because of the ways that um, Cuban-Americans have been situated in our society in terms of their political perspectives. And I wanted to kind of tease out the distinctions that Blackness um, makes for, um, for Cubans who come to the United States. Um, what, how does Blackness kind of impact their experiences differentially than, for, than those who are um, white Cubans or who are mestizo Cubans. So I wanted to really kind of get, delve into that. And it, so it kind of seems roundabout given that I grew up in Orange County, but I thought that that kind of positionality of being both Black and Latinx was something I really wanted to explore. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that that is a great introduction into the book, right? Um, the Racial Politics of Division, Interethnic Struggles for Legitimacy in Multicultural Miami. So can you set the scene for us, right? What, what, where are we? What are the different populations we're speaking about? What is important for us as readers to know um, in your introduction, right? What frameworks are you working with and what will help us better understand um, the rest of the book? Sure. So there's a lot of complexity to Miami that is quite different from a space like Los Angeles or, you know, California in the fact that it has this history of being, um, you know, being a Southern town where there is these distinct um, divisions between black and white. And then people who would come in from other countries, they would be situated within that black, white divide in particular ways. Um, and I really want to explore, you know, how we see this transition from the black white divide to this divide that's much more multi-ethnic and how, um, and how those shifts and how they intersect actually, you know, this black white divide and this, and the more multicultural um, divisions that happened when uh, Cubans came in and other immigrant groups came in. Um, so the populations that I'm interested in um, generally, when people talk about this, it, they will talk about blacks, whites and Cubans, but they won't differentiate between Cubans. Uh, and so I really wanted to capture the distinctions, you know, so, um, so in the 1980s, it was really this key um, turning point for Miami and for the nation, really, 
1980, it was the beginning of the period called the browning of the, you know, the browning of America. We had much larger populations of Latinx people coming into the United States. And so there's this shift, um, uh, more uh, a larger shift in the culture of the United States from thinking about the U.S. as simply um, race relations being about black and white, um, you know, in this post-civil rights movement, uh, civil rights movement time period to more this multicultural idea of what the United States was because we had, you know, more immigrants coming from Asia and from Latin America. So at the time that we have this larger shift going on in the culture, we also have in Miami um, that uh, the Mariel exodus would, uh, would happen that year and would bring a much larger proportion of black Cubans to the area than ever before. So those black Cubans um, would, would change the way that we understand what it means to be Cuban And it would also challenge African-Americans to think about um, this idea of Blackness and and how they um, define that. And so because of all these complicated shifts that were going on at this time period, I really wanted to situate um, my study at this particular time and um, grapple with how these different populations were um, understanding these shifts. And one of the reasons why this was so important is because there had already been this kind of established division between African-Americans and Cubans because um, African-Americans had just, you know, kind of won their fight against civil rights, but there were still lingering problems um, in Miami, police brutality, things like that that African-Americans were still facing. And when Cubans were coming in such large numbers, African-Americans began to look at Cubans as part of the blame um, for some of the problems that were going on. Um, and, and so this strict division was being um, set up between African-Americans and Cubans. And so one of the frameworks that I really wanted to bring in into the larger book is to um, understand divisions between racialized groups, um, not in an isolated sense, but always um, take into account what is it about our society? Um, how does white supremacy play a role um, you know, we don't want to leave, you know, to 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 frame these as that in, in a sense that black that whites are innocent bystanders on the side and that this is simply this division between African-Americans and a newcomer from outside. I wanted to really analyze what was going on and understand the role of state intervention, um, politics and those types of things um, in framing and shaping the way these divisions played out. Yeah, I think for for me that was one of the more really interesting and like because you, you sort of use right different different um, binaries through which to facilitate these relationships, right? The, mm-hmm. the black white binary, the native foreign binary, um, worthy unworthy, right? Um, right? Can you talk maybe more about those and specifically how their those binaries are facilitated through um, white supremacy? Right. Mm-hmm. They're facilitated by and through um, um, white folks and, and white structures and, and infrastructures that are that are in place. Right. Yes. So one of the things I really want to highlight in the book is the way that these really complicated racial dynamics get oversimplified um, within the white racial structure that we have. And um, one of the key dynamics that we have had in our society is this division that whites um, white elites have put in place between and black and white, where white is um, worthy 
to be a citizen and black is unworthy or non-citizen. And um, we can see that in um, the way that laws were, were um, the way that people defined what it, who it is to be, who can be a citizen where blacks were left out of that, even if they were born in the United States. Um, and so I, I, we see this kind of this racial division, black versus white, but we also see this division in terms of the idea of who is a native and who is a foreigner. And here is where we can um, see other groups sometimes adopting these racialized idea, binary ideas. So for example, in the um, context of the book, when African-Americans were, um, were upset that the larger white structure was ignoring their concerns, um, some of the rhetoric that I found in my research was um, very much to highlight the fact that African-Americans were native to the United States. And so their needs and their concerns should be seen as more important than people who are foreigners. And so it's kind of this new, this reinscription of the black-white binary or these binaries that the larger white society has put in place. And the other place that we can see these binaries is when immigrant groups themselves sometimes... um, you know, uh, built this idea of who can be a good immigrant and who can be a bad immigrant. So that good immigrants are those who um, subscribe to all the ideals of the U.S. nation, such as freedom, being freedom-loving, hardworking, patriotic, and bad immigrants are those who come here looking for, for, for handouts or who are not self-sufficient. And so one of the points I wanted to make is about how these kind of racial notions uh, about worthiness um, come to be seen, come to be taken for granted and to have um, uh, come to be seen as a logical way to understand, um, you know, racialized groups. Yeah. And can you, can you talk more specifically? I'm, I'm, I'm um, looking more into your first chapter, right? How you look at these different frames in Miami specifically Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe some of the history, thinking about the Cuban Revolution, thinking about the racialization of of immigrants during the Cuban Revolution, mm-hmm. um, and then also um, what that does with with sort of structuring, restructuring Miami in a way, right, that um, complicates relationships not only between um, white populations, like non-Latinx white populations and African-Americans, but also white Cubans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really complicated about the Miami um, situation as compared to other cities. Um, so that in the United States or in Miami, we have um, already had these black-white divisions so that when black immigrants would come in from the Caribbean they would be situated um, in particular ways where their ethnic um, background was less important than their racial background. So in terms of where they had to live and things like that, they would be segregated along those racial um, binaries between black and white. Um, But when Cubans came in after Fidel Castro came in, um, it was more likely to be the white Cubans. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that this is related to the racial dynamics of Miami. I'm sorry, excuse me, of Cuba, where, mm-hmm. um, where, where whites were already, you know, we, they had a similar system as the United States where they have um, slavery and whites were most likely to benefit from, from that uh, system. 
and to the, be the wealthiest of that um, of, of the country. So then when Fidel Castro came in and tried to equalize um, equalize the you know the economy and um, and, and all the shifts that were uh, happening, um, white Cubans were most likely to be disenfranchised and to be those who would would want to come to United States when the U.S. opened up the way for them to come. And um, so it's this interesting divide that occurred partially because of the dynamics in in um, Cuba that were already placed whites on top. Mm-hmm. Um, then also the U.S., with this rhetoric of anti-communism that um, allowed people who were coming from communist countries to be seen as more worthy of entry into United States than people from other countries. And um, so, you know, the groups that came in from Cuba at that time, you know, they embraced that narrative. Um, and, and so there's a particular political perspective that um, the Miami Cuban community is known for that um, supports kind of these ideas of the, this, this worthy versus unworthy um, immigrant um, narrative. And um, so all of those things kind of work together to complicate the relations that were there between um, African-Americans and Cuban-Americans in Miami. Right. And I think, I, I think that was also really important for you to do, right, is, is say that not only are we thinking about racialization processes in the United States, but Cuba has their own history right. um, of racialization. And, and then by the later 20th century, we see we had seen this emergence of like a Cuban nationalism, right? Where right. Their, their, their thought process was, was, or the racialization process was much, much more along the lines of if you're Cuban, you're Cuban, right? Regardless of your skin color. Right. But then, right, we, heading towards chapter two, we see the Maria Alexis in 1980. Right, and what what then does that what then what then does the introduction of Maria Lito immigrants shift? How does that shift our understandings of race and immigration in Miami specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the major things that we could see was one that we see a larger proportion of Black Cubans coming to United States. So it it disrupted this idea that Cubans are are white and that they are only white. Um, and this is the way that they were seen um, by African-Americans, but also among some Cubans themselves, where they kind of made this claim to whiteness. Um, and so we see this as one of the main issues. But then another thing that was really important about the Mariel Exodus was that it also demonstrated the way that the U.S., um, the contradictions in the way that the U.S. handled immigration in general, but also how they handled the Cuban um, Cuban immigrants. So, you know, the Marielitos were not welcomed in the same way that the earlier arrivals had been. Um, they had much harder time finding sponsors. Um, the U.S. was beginning to um, rethink their open door policy towards Cubans. And, you know, this is quite interesting given the fact that the Marielitos, as they were called, were more likely to be Black, were more likely to be um, single men were, were more likely to be um, to be uh, poor, and you know, and there was this idea of queerness and all these different ideas of what was unwanted or one unworthy mm-hmm. came along with the Mariel uh, immigrants, and um, so we see this major shift that really helped to point out some of the contradictions in 
not only understanding race as kind of this, this, you know, kind of this um, distinct, you know, distinct white versus black or, or what have you, but also in the contradictions in, in terms of how the U.S. was treating all immigrants, but also Cubans in general. Mm-hmm. And then, specific, so, so you're sort of, for at least this, this chapter, your main source of information, right, is um, El Miami Herald, right, which is a, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, like a Cuban-owned newspaper or a Spanish, speak, predominantly Spanish-speaking newspaper. Um, so I'm curious then how, what was the, what was the reporting on um, the Mario Exodus in these papers um, mm-hmm. and its relationship between um, Cubans who had arrived in Miami in the earlier, in maybe the 1950s and 60s versus mm-hmm. the sort of new arrival of immigrants? So, yeah, so what we see at this time period, I did look at some of the periodiquitos, or like the smaller um, Cuban-owned papers, but also the the Miami Herald, um, El, El Nuevo Herald. And um, what we can see is a lot of different voices coming through in the paper that I examined. So we see that the main, um, the Miami Herald, which was the more mainstream paper, um, was very anti you know, immigrants or very much against the Mariel, you know, entrance coming in um, and painted them in this negative light, really kind of um, adopted the discourse that Fidel Castro um, was putting forth about how they how they are unworthy or how they're criminals. That was like the the main way that um, Mariel immigrants were described in the newspapers. And one thing that really captured that was that just the abundance of reporting on crimes committed by um, people from Mariel. Um, Mm. And and so that's one of the, you know, that was one of the major themes that came out of kind of associating Mariel immigrants with criminality. Um, And then, but we also saw at that time that was very clear in terms of um, Cuban American voices is that they, there was a lot of ambivalence. Um, It, you know, Cubans wanted to, they wanted to embrace their newcomers. They wanted to defend them. You know, when people were saying these negative things about them, you know, they wanted to, to talk about why they were not um, unworthy. And so one of the points that I really bring out is how, you know, how this was kind of uh, illustrated through this language of dissociation. So this way of um, talking about how they really were worthy because they were patriotic. They were not asking for handouts, um, kind of adopting this language about worthiness to kind mm-hmm. of bolster this image of the newcomers to kind of rescue them from these narratives that were circulating in the larger culture. And one of the things I wanted to really highlight is how blackness um, was, you know, this kind of, um, uh, kind of, I guess you would say a code for, you know, the the the, the bad immigrants, the bad Marielitos were those who um, were Black. And it, this wasn't overt in terms of saying, yes, all of those who actually have Black skin color are the bad ones, but more this idea of those who were comm- committing crimes or who were not adopting the proper ideals, those are the bad ones, but the majority of them are actually good. So again, these binaries um, become these important ways to um, differentiate differentiate worthy versus worthy, non-worthy citizens. 
Yeah, and then towards the end of chapter two, you have this sort of expose on the Casanova family. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about them? Sure. So the Casanova family, um, there was uh, a man named Juan Casanova, his his wife and their son. And one thing that was really interesting is that the newspaper did a big expose on them. They so happened to be Afro-Cuban, but what the newspaper was trying to do was to capture the daily life of a Mariel family and how they were adapting to the United States. So um, one of the things that really came through in that expose was um, the way it was painting them as becoming um, American. So they were gain they were they were um, gaining um, you know they like for example one of the things that it said is that they the little boy started to like Coca Cola and they they got a um, they got some appliances like a, a they got a washing machine and these different types of um, things that showed that they were buying into kind of the capitalistic ideal of the United States and and that they weren't asking for handouts and these types of things um, and while the Reporting did capture some of the problems that they were encountering, um, you know, really becoming a part of our society. Um, it really kept this, you know, more positive, um, optimistic view of how the Casanova family was faring without really addressing anything in relation to race um, that that would be something important to, to take into account. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, in that chapter, I analyzed some of the aspects related to race that might have impacted um, the reasons why, even though they were not actually, they were very educated, they had a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the qualities that would make that you would think would make their story more similar to white Cubans in the United States. Um, I wanted to point out some of the reasons or some of the issues that they were encountering that um, may be related to race and that um, the papers were were ignoring. Mm-hmm. So we so as of now, right? We have this story that we that we we're trying to think about not only the immigration of of Cuban immigrants post or during the Cuban Revolution, but also sort of 1980 with the Marial Exodus, and also the racialization between that that's happening in the U.S. and Cuba. And then Chapter Three, you turn to. The black press, or more specifically, right, the African American press, mm-hmm. and you sort of introduce us with a whole other perspective on Cuban immigration into Miami in the later twentieth century. And so, then, can you talk more about how post civil rights era African American press, right, is is grappling with the conceptualizations of blackness and their own political positions um, of race in sort of a multicultural city like Miami. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was very important to talk about the African-American point of view um, because a lot of the um, scholarship that talk that 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 focuses on Cuban-Americans, first of all, neglects to capture the Black Cuban experience, but also to talk about their experiences in relation to um, other groups around them, including African-Americans. And um, for African-Americans during this time period, they had, um, you know, they had been the largest minority group until Cubans came and surpassed them. And um, they were still dealing with some of the problems related to um, anti-Black racism. Uh, in 1980, for example, we had the McDuffie 
um, um, uprising, which was their response to the killing of Arthur McDuffie just the year before. And it just so happened that that same year, the Mariel Exodus um, also occurred. So they were afraid that there was going to be this shift where the, um, the, the elite in the area would, would shift their focus onto immigration, onto the Cuban presence, and away from their lingering concerns. Um, and so in the newspaper, we see that they were grappling with um, this idea of how to, um, you know, whether, Afri- whether they could understand Cubans as minorities like themselves or as kind of like these new white oppressors. And a lot of the way that they were discussed in this um, newspaper, this was the uh, Miami Times, was um, as white immigrants. And one of the reasons why that that distinction was being made is because um, Haitians were also coming in at the same time period, Haitians who were more readily identified as Black. And Haitians were not receiving the same treatment as Cubans. They were not allowed to um, enter the United States, they were being sent to Guantanamo. Um, they were not seen as um, worthy of rescue, and so African Americans, seeing this, you know, this disparity in treatment of these two immigrant groups, um, really interpreted this as kind of the white elite, um, you know, reinscribing the kind of white black binary that they've been experiencing for you know for years in, in the local um, in the local sense. On, you know, in terms of the the way that um, immigration policy was being formed and thought out, and but with the Mariel Cubans, it really challenged African Americans to kind of rethink this as simply about race, as simply being about race or whiteness or blackness, because Cubans, you know, they were uh, able to observe were not only white but also black, and that there are also contradictions in how the Mariel Cubans were being treated by. Um, by the by, the U.S. in terms of immigration policy. So there was a lot that African Americans were grappling with in terms of how to frame their own fight against the continued um, disenfranchisement they were experiencing, and how to incorporate immigrants into the conversation about race and what's going on in our society. Yeah, I, I, um, so on page 94, you say specifically just that, right? You say the Times, I'm, read, I'm reading from the book now, you say, the Times coverage suggests that African-American evaluations of the Mariel Exodus were not simply about competing for scarce resources, but were shaped by their attempts at a deeper ideological critique of U.S. immigration policy and the ways it upholds white dominance. Right. So I, I think it was, I, it was really, um, really exciting to see that analysis that like it wasn't that they were feeling bad for their lock for loss of jobs, but there was a, a sustained and intentional critique of how Haitian immigrants are being tra- treated differently than Cuban immigrants. Um, and specifically along the lines of race. Um, right. And I think, yeah, I just found that incredibly refreshing and also so complicated, right? Because then, what does <laughs> what what does the African American press do with the presence or absence of Afro Cubans and the larger understanding of Cuban immigration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that I wanted to point to in that chapter and in the book as a whole 
is, you know, the complexity of all these different things, the way that race is a part of these dynamics, even when it may not seem to be the case. Um, and the different ways that this kind of um, plays out, you know, so I think like this idea that certain immigrants, those fleeing communist countries are more worthy than those fleeing other countries. Mm. Um, something that I think the black press, um, you know, that's something that, that was necessary, like a nuance for them to understand the dynamics that were going on. So that, you know, kind of the, the way that the U S um, goes about its immigration policy goes hand in hand with the way that it goes about its civil rights policy that impacts African-Americans. And so one cannot, you know, really play one against the other African-Americans versus immigrants, but really we have to see how um, these issues are intertwined and, and and remember how the role of white dominance in, in all of this, you know, what, what, how is this supporting uh, an, an order a racial order that keeps whites in power. Right. Cause thinking about like these things happen at different scales, right? Yeah. You have sort of Miami or maybe even neighborhood, right. But then immigration policy gets set at the state and national level. Mm-hmm. Right. So how are those filtering down and up? How are, how are processes of racialization moving both ways? Right. Um, um, now I want to sort of try to move into chapter four, right? Framing the Balsado crisis, the racial and moral politics of suffering. Um, can you tell us about what's happening in the later part of the 20th century, specifically 1994? Where are we? Where is Miami? And how, mm-hmm. what is the, what does the racial landscape look like when the Balsado the crisis starts to occur? Okay, sure. Yeah. So this time period is, is quite distinct from the ni- from 1980s. The 1980s, we really had this Cold War rhetoric that was framing all of all the dynamics that we see going on, um, you know, that we were just discussing. Um, but by the 1990s, you know, the Cold War was was waning, and we have this discourse that had grown, um, you know, regarding human rights and um, where the U.S. or the U.S. and the world was actually. Um, you know, promoting this idea that one should um, care about the rights of people, you know, immigrants, refugees, those types of things. We saw at this time period um, the changes that were going on in South Africa and how the U.S. was involved in, in sanctioning South Africa to bring about these shifts in in that country and 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 how worldwide pressure made those change made for those changes. So this idea, this idealization of human rights. Um, became this narrative or this type of um, terminology that could be uh, called upon by um, by oppressed groups to advocate for themselves. So we saw this in the case of Cuban Americans and also for African Americans who were looking to what was going on in um, in South Africa to call on the U.S. to to fully bring about um, you know the end of the oppression of blacks in the United States. Um, so we have the shift in, in, in that, in terms of that. And so then when the Balceros um, came, it was very much part of this whole shift from the cold war because the fall of the Soviet union created these conditions in Cuba where there was this um, scarcity um, and where they had to ration medicine and food and, 
And this um, created conditions where more Cubans wanted to leave. And they were, you know, coming on balsas with these little boats, these little rafts across the United States, um, you know, really in this state of desperation. And one of the ways that this was viewed by um, people in the U.S., there was definitely a lot of sympathy for them coming in. Um, But at the same time, they were beginning to be seen more as economic refugees rather than political refugees. So we have, again, this shift in understanding about Cubans and 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 when and who they who they are and how whether we should accept them in the United States whether we should keep the open door or or not. Um, in Miami, locally, African Americans were still fighting the same battles they had been before. Their you know economic situation um, was still had not improved. Um, and so when this new group of Cubans were coming in, there was the same tensions that were there in the 80s between Cubans and African-Americans. And so it's a really, you know, complex issue that has a lot of similarities to what they were experiencing in the 1980s, but also has these other dynamics um, that would impact um, Cubans differently um, in that they were able to see that the U.S., was really starting to turn kind of a blind eye towards their needs. And I think there's a lot of contradictions that were being revealed in this particular time period. Right. And, and I think even uh, an even further realization that those contradictions post-civil rights movement had been happening for, at this point, almost 20 years. Right. Um, so, so, so yeah, but um, I want to talk about specifically African-Americans' understanding of Pan-Africanism at this time in relation not only to to, um, Haitian immigrants, right, but Mm -hmm. you sort of offer a glimmer of understanding with the writings of Rosa Reed um, in in, uh, the African-American press. Can you talk about that possibility? Can you talk about what, what Rosa was doing, what she was writing, and how she was navigating the world as an Afro-Cuban in the Black press. Mm-hmm. What, yeah, that, that was really an interesting um, aspect of this time period is how the Black press um, had incorporated this prominent Afro-Cuban female voice. Um, she had her own col- column and she gave commentary that positioned her, that showed her complicated positionality. And again, one of the reasons why I really wanted to focus in on you know, the Afro-Cubans who were coming at these time periods because it really helps to complicate all these particular ideas about what race is, you know, these static ideas about race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was speaking from the perspective of someone who acknowledged her Blackness, um, was very much aligning herself with African-Americans because of, you know, being Black. But she also um, had some ways that she was aligning herself with um, with Cubans. Um, she had a lot of critique, though, of how Cubans were understanding what was going on at the time, you know, in terms of what U.S. policy should be towards um, uh, towards Cuba. Um, and she was very much um, clear in, in calling out some of the ways that white Cubans were, were mistreating Black Cubans. Um, so she really had this voice that you know, sort of to complicate the idea of um, what it means to be Cuban, what it means to be Black, 
Um, and, and I think that was really, uh, you know, it, it was really a, a welcome aspect of, the, you know, what the paper was doing. Um, one thing I would note too, is that, you know, the paper, even though there was a lot of negative um, uh, coverage of, you know, ne- negative framing of, of Cubans and, you know, this kind of opposition was being set up between black and white Cubans. We also had other voices, especially from black politicians who um, had, um, syndicated columns that ran in a paper which warned against kind of the divide and conquer politics that was that was coming out. So we had you know these multiple voices coming out in the newspaper. Yeah, for for me, one of the things that I found, um, at least in chapter four, m- most striking, even though as sort of people who understand race and race making, we kind of, we know this, right? But you write it on page 124. You say, um, African-American concerns as they also took on the cause of black Haitians reveal the truth about the U.S. racial framework. That is that blacks, whether foreign born or native born African-Americans could not escape their constructions as other in some shape or form when compared to whiteness or Americanness, Mm -hmm. right? That, 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 regardless of these frameworks that we're trying to work in or fit in that were set by white supremacist structures, blackness always fails. Mm-hmm. And then how does, how did that play out on the, on, on the sort of landscape of media, um, newspaper media in the later 20th century in Miami? I think your book does that amazingly. Thank you. Um, and my favorite chapter was chapter five, I think, because this is where really the the voices of Afro-Cuban, Afro-Cubans and the interviews you conducted with Afro-Cubans really shined through um, and allowed us to really get to an understanding of how you're thinking about um, Afro-Latinidad within all of these frameworks, right? And, and, and I really want to talk about um, chapter five and, and your thought process behind Afro-Cuban encounters at the intersections of Blackness and Latinidad. Great. Yeah, I think one of the things I really wanted to do with that chapter is I wanted to allow us to delve deeper into how Afro-Cubans themselves were thinking about some of the dynamics that we've been talking about in the previous chapters that were going on. I wanted to hear their voices and them talking about their experiences, their personal experiences. And um, so some, some of the things that was very clear is how they um, saw themselves as kind of in this in-between space, um, how they were, even if they didn't see themselves there, they were placed there by other people. So people would encounter them and wouldn't know what to do with them. <laughs> you know, so, you know, are they African-American? Are they, um, Latinx, you know, how do you even define what they are? Um, one of the big things that um, they talked about is that in Miami, they would often be misrecognized or not recognized as Cuban. Um, even when they spoke, you, they would think maybe someone would, would would see that they have an accent from Cuba, but but many white Cubans would um, would not recognize that they were Cuban. And they saw this as this kind of slight as this um, denial of blackness um, by uh, some white Cubans in Miami. 
And so there is this issue for them, not only as being an immigrant of having to deal with, you know, how to become American, how to, you know, um, be seen in the United States and, 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 and deal with that transition, but also what does it mean to be Cuban in the United States? Because there had been such a divide between, um, you know, what it, what it means to be Cuban, whether it's you have to adopt a certain type of politics, a political perspective, it means that you are a certain color and not another color. So they, there is also a grappling with with that, along with um, just the dynamics that are there of, of trying to adjust to a new environment. So there is those um, issues they ran into with other Cubans, but also not fitting completely within, you know, African-American circles because either the language barrier or African-Americans having a limited idea about what it means to be Black, where um, someone who's not an English speaker may not be viewed as a true Black, quote unquote. So um, this kind of in-between positionality, I talk about how it allowed for a particular perspective by which they could analyze um, race that I felt that we could learn a lot from. Yeah, and I and I think um, I think I like this chapter so much because like this is what I would teach. Like this is the chapter that I'd be like, let's go to this because this is what we as Latino studies need to be looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, I was really excited about um, page one sixty where you talk about um, you say Afro Cubans have a multiple positionality that allows them to disrupt and cross the United States' rigid rigidly policed ethnic racial boundaries. But then in the same paragraph, you go on to say, like, I don't by, by this, I don't mean mestizaje. I don't mean colorblindness. Right. Again, bringing together both Latin American and U.S. based notions of, of, of racial um, of racial processes. Right. But you say instead, I contend the resistive potential of in-between identities lies in the fact that they further illuminate the strength of hegemonic power dynamics that dictate the idea that one's placement in particular categories makes them more or less worthy of social membership and national belonging. And I can go on, but I want to hear you talk about in-betweenness and Afro-Latinidad in the United States and the, the, the potentiality of disruption. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important to think about um, Afro-Latinidad that complicates um, this idea of mestizaje, I think that um, you know, a lot of scholars who talk about Afro-Latinidad, one of the contributions I think that's made there is disrupting this idea that mestizaje is the um, is the thing that's going to save us, right? <laughs> so, so this idea that we're in between, that we're a mixture of all these different ethnic and racial groups, that that in, in and of itself is what um, disrupts, you know, the binaries and that challenges, um, you know, racial... Um, these racial distinctions that are being made in our society. Um, because one of the things that Afro-Latinx uh, Afro folks encounter is also in this racism that other Latinx, Latinx folks are, um, you know, projecting their way. So we have white, you know, Latinx folks and mestizo Latinx folks um, telling them that they are not true Latin, Latinos, that they don't belong that something about their blackness makes them inferior. And so there, I think that it's important to bring in how blackness complicates the, you know, the, this idea of mestizaje as the thing that will um, 
that will save us. And the other thing that I thought that was really important about that is that it helps us, you know, when, 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 they, when we hear these stories from people who are Afro-Latinx, in particular, these, um, the interviewees in this chapter, is that we see that they complicate this idea of race from all different sides. So mm. people who are, um, who think pan-Africanism is going to save us, you know, mm. they're complicating those ideals. Um, you know, people who, so, so, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that they're complicating these binaries and these issues, but it's not simply about being in between. That's the thing that, um, that, um, you know, that is, is the thing that is resistive. It's not simply just being in between, but it's just the fact that the experience that they have being um, viewed as other it illuminates the problem. It, it illuminates how strong this problem continues to exist and that it isn't something that is overcome simply because you are in the middle. And so that's something I really wanted to, to bring out in, in their stories. Yeah, thank you. Um, and one more thing, just on page, this is back to, again, this idea of, of, of um, Afro-Latinx and Latin, Latinidad and Latinx studies. Um, you say on page 191, um, an uncritical celebration of Latinidad, there is much that is obscured. As scholars of Afro-Latino studies have argued, it is essential for scholarship to engage with how racist notions of Latin America and the United States intersect and differentially um, affect, affect the immigration incorporation of Afro-Latino immigrants into the specific national context of the United States. And then you say, um, examining how Afro-Cuban immigrants negotiate the intersections of Blackness and Latinidad and rejections they sometimes face from each from each other from other Latinos allows an important critique of the ways white supremacist notions have been embraced or perpetuated by non-black Latinos. Mm-hmm. Highlight, underline, starred, everything. <laughs> yeah, I think those intersections are, you know, another aspect of the complexity that I really wanted to delve into with this book. You know, you know, so not only is it about what happens when people cross borders into the United States and, and how they experience the racial climate that's already existing, but how the racial climate, the racial um, perspectives from their country of origin or from other people's country of origin, how those perspectives, which are brought here intersect with the U S. So, you know, for example, like with um, some Cuban Americans, the, you know, the ideals in Cuba that, that kept white, you know, on the top and black on the bottom, they come and intersect with the way the U.S. also um, frames uh, race in in a similar fashion, but differently. So there's different ways this will intersect and they will impact people. And I really wanted to capture that. I think those complexities are something that we have to grapple with because they really really structure how um, Afro-Latinx immigrants uh, experience life in the United States. Yeah, thank you. Um, and before I ask you sort of the, the more common question on new books, um, I want to ask um, about your conclusion. Where I mean, where are we now? Um, you sort of open up um, the conclusion with thinking about um, police brutality or, or, or brutal- anti-Black racism um, and move on to think about where, where, where Miami is today. Do you have anything to add about the conclusion or where you, how, what your hopes are for the book? Yeah, I think that I, 
in terms of the hopes for the book, it's it's situated within Miami because I think Miami allows us to have this really uh, fascinating um, place to explore these issues related to race and how they can be so, so complex and complicated by black, white binaries and and also immigrant foreigner binaries, good versus bad, all these kind of dynamics, they really um, show up in profound ways in this particular space. And I think that there's so much to be learned from, from Miami and it's shifting so much today where, you know, um, you know, for example, a place like Ocho, um, you know, it's not, it, it used to be a cu- very Cuban space and isn't anymore. So there's a lot of shifts already going on in Miami that um, we, we need to continue to look at. So I think there's a lot that we learned about Miami in particular, but I think that this, goes beyond Miami, because I think I wanted us to talk about these dynamics and how these ideals about worthiness and unworthiness come to be seen as, um, they've they've come to be logical so that even people of color might subscribe to some of these ideals. How does this come to be? And I, I wanted to think about how this might play out in other cities as well. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, there's, it's definitely in conversation with work that is about um, African-American and Latinx relations. Um, it's in conversation with the, the, that work. And that work um, points to the fact that, you know, divisions between these groups is not the norm. It's not the, the primary way that um, race relations play out. But it's also important to examine deeply when those divisions do occur, how do we understand them? How do we um, break them down so that we can kind of um, re- revise our thinking and, and continue to focus on the larger dynamics um, that divide us and kind of put forth this divide and conquer um, perspective? You know, I, I really wanted, wanted to kind of bring out how the book can go beyond um, the Miami context to think about the larger United States. And um, so those are some of the things that I, I, the conclusion gets into thinking about how um, immigration policy at this current moment, some of the um, contradictions that are showing up and, um, and how those really um, go along with what we see going on with, you know, the killing of black men, um, that we just, you know, there's, there's always every month or every year, there's a new, um, there's a new issue in relation to that. And um, so I want to continue to keep the conversation going about how this is playing out in the present. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, and, and I think for, for folks who haven't gotten a chance to read the book, there is a really fascinating section in the last chapter about uh, Afro-Cubans in Los Angeles, um, which is, which is, uh, Fun to read, right? Going from Miami the entire book to Los Angeles. Um, but but thank you, Monica, so much for your time. Uh, one more question, uh, sort of a, a question we ask every interviewee on new books is, what are you working on now? Well, now I really want to, there's a few different projects that I'm interested in, but some of them that are related to this book have to do with um, the changes that, you know, the shifts in U.S. policy towards Cuban immigrants. I'm, in particular, I'm interested in um, Cubans who are trying to come through the U.S.-Mexico border and the way that they are being treated, um, similar to 
all other immigrants because of the way the asylum um, laws have been shifting under the new administration. I want to really delve into um, some of those contradictions and in particular how Black Cubans may be faring, um, you know, as they're caught up within this these, these shifts. So that's one thing that I'm really interested in um, exploring and I've been working on. Um, another one that I'm interested in is uh, for further exploring um, political divisions between within groups. So within um, African-American groups, within Latinx groups, political divisions, um, you know, that frame. I think one of the things that people could, they have this idea that, you know, minority groups are united politically and that there's one particular way that they think. And I think that even if you say, for example, Latinx groups are more likely to, to, to be Democrat Democrats, there's these divisions that we're seeing popping up, um, you know, these smaller groups who might be conservative or what have you. I really want to explore some of these divisions and, and how they relate to some of the themes that I talk about in my book. Hmm. Those both sound incredibly fascinating, and I'm sure we're all waiting. <laughs> uh, we'll all be waiting for them. But thank you. Um, Monica, thank you so much for your time and for being with us today on New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Take care. Thanks.